Welcome to Tea with Culture. My name is Hinda Zaina, and in this episode, I talk to Todd Rees about his book, Showpiece City, How Architecture Made Dubai, and his exhibition, Off Center On Stage, that is accompanied by a book with the same title at Jamil Art Center. Todd is a personal friend and a collaborator, and we've known each other for over a decade. And through this time, I've witnessed his journey of researching and writing the book. I think of him as my Dubai kindred spirit. Todd Reese is an architect and a writer. His work examines the global practice of architecture, specifically how the architect circulates technologies and cultural narratives. In addition to the two books about Dubai, he also co-edited Building Sharjah, an archival investigation of Sharjah's vanishing 20th century landscape, and includes a selection of essays and images from several contributors, including yours truly. Our conversation was recorded in Jamil Art Center Library, where we dig into Showpiece City and Off Center on Stage, the writing and research process, the importance of thinking about the past to contextualize the present, and how Dubai defies analysis. You'll find links on where to find the books and purchase them in the episode notes. Congratulations, Todd, on your book, Showpiece City, How Architecture Made Dubai, a project I think that you've been working on for 12 years, and I've known you for maybe 10 years of that uh, during that time. So maybe the starting point is why this book and why John Harris? Thank you for the congratulations. And yes, you've been there for very much of the ride, uh, literally and metaphorically. Like literally, we've been on many rides that have kind of been based on this book, you know. I uh, was introduced to, I came across the work by John Harris and his firm uh, when I was working as an architect in, in Rotterdam. And we... We're looking for a kind of greater context in which this, the, the architecture firm was being asked to write. And we had made these two books, which you know well, Almanach and Almanach II. And in the making of Almanach II, I, I met John Harris, uh, and I worked rather closely with his wife once uh, he passed away in, in 2009, um, actually 2008, uh, and also his son, Mark Harris. And working with Mark, I, you know, we were looking for material for these books, Almanach, and he just kept coming out of the basement, literally, with more and more material. And I, I really realized that there, there, was a, there was a story that hadn't been told, literally the kind of transformation, the expansion of Dubai through the expertise of architecture. And that's what I really kind of, that's really what started it, yeah. And the book really is a telling of a story of Dubai that isn't necessarily known well or been written about because I think, you know, as we've talked many times, you know, the, how Dubai is addressed, you know, as post-2000 and as if, like, nothing happened before, which is something that always irks me, you know, that kind of thinking of Dubai that nothing happened before the 2000s. And it is, it is a telling of a, it's a story of a city through architecture, through the architects, through kind of these interesting protagonists that were in, in the city at the time, including Sheikh Rashid. And, and I think there's a very strong kind of British presence um, in the book because of the, you know, the years that you're, you covered in this book. And, and I was thinking about kind of the, the, the positioning of Dubai at the time, right? So a protectorate, uh, you know, it's, it's part of the Trucial states and, and uh, you know, or, or a, a colony, right? Like, so I think these words get blurred and mixed in terms of how to think of Dubai, you know, before 1971, before it became part of the United Arab Emirates. And yeah, I'd, I'd like to 
to get your thoughts on that because there is a very heavy British presence in, in the book, obviously, because of, like I said, the, the, the history that you're covering from that period. But yeah, what does it mean in the context of today, especially kind of when there's a lot of talks about, you know, decolonizing and, and, and readdressing colonial histories? You know, when I, when I started to work on this book, so, you know, the moment when I'm looking at these images and seeing that there's a book, my original idea for the book was lovely pictures, do some nice long captions, do a short, maybe, I don't know, 20-page uh, introduction to the, to the book. And I, I was constantly looking for, for the text to help me to write, the, to write that. And it just slowly became apparent that it hadn't been written. I mean, you have Frockerhard Bay's book. Akhil Qasim wrote a book. Uh, there's another one in English that also really helped me. Um, I'm forgetting the writer's name. Uh, these books were largely focused on the formation of a federation, the UAE. They weren't urban histories, but nevertheless, they're, they're extremely helpful for me in understanding, especially what you just brought up as kind of the legal terms. What I realized is that I had to do a lot of the research myself, primary documents, and a lot of these documents and these are specifically British documents, and we'll come back to the Britishness of the book. Uh, but a lot of these documents are in the National Archives. A lot of them had been accessed for other histories, but they hadn't been accessed in this, more for state-making uh, state research projects, not about how a city uh, modernizes, how a city expands. So I went back to those documents as a source you brought up the issue of of Dubai's colonial history. I mean, there certainly is a colonial history. Uh, it was never officially a colony. It was never officially a, a protectorate. And these are, even in the British documents, you see that they're being very careful not to not to um, to name it that. Um, at at a certain point. Um, the the trucial states, which we'll get into the name of that, become recognized as a protected state, which again had no kind of legal definition, and this is you know very clearly a part on the British government. Whereas you know we often talk about colonization, you know it's very much linked to, for example, labor or natural resources and, and extracting that uh, from a place outside one's central realm, right? There's also a responsibility that comes with it in terms of, I don't mean that kind of moral responsibility, I mean a kind of outward appearance of responsibility that once you just say you're colonizing something, then other, other places in the world will you know, respond to that uh, probably rather negatively. The word trucial, the term trucial states, you know, the word trucial is invented, it's invented uh, you know, the Oxford English Dictionary backs this up. It was invented for the purpose of naming uh, these collected emirates, these collected governmental systems, uh, yeah, between Abu Dhabi and Ras al Khaimah. Uh, and I think that's a really fascinating thing that this this word, uh, you know, at the, I would say it's at the, um, I have it in the book, I'm, I'm forgetting where exactly, but it's it's probably late 19th century that this word is invented to describe a place that's, that is designed not to conform to what is already existing. And 
And it comes up a few times, uh, this description of how Dubai defies analysis, right? And I, I feel that's probably, you know, <laughs> the, the source of that, right? So there's this history that till today, I feel defies analysis because, again, there's this very stereotypical idea of what Dubai is, especially when we see it written about in, you know, publications outside the region, um, you know, either looked down upon or, you know, kind of not taken seriously or just you know accusations and and in a place which I feel like this is a place that had ambition that had you know dreams and and why not you know why hold that against it right and and what I find most fascinating is I think you started writing this book at a time when the Dubai bashing article right started becoming a trend and what was it like you you know you working and looking you're, you're stuck in a past or you're you know you're losing yourself in a past to understand the present and 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 I can't deny the fact that I was reading this book and thinking about the present and you know I mean the book's come out in 2020 and what a year is that right like <laughs> um you know so we're dealing with a pandemic we're dealing with closed borders we're dealing with um it's you know every place is trying to deal with the pandemic the best way they can and 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 a lot of what I was reading I'm like my god this just feels very present like um, so this defying analysis was a phrase that I thought about because it, it's true. It's hard to people who don't understand Dubai. It takes time. And I've always said this, right? You need, it, it takes to really understand this place. It, it takes time and it, it requires effort. It's not just a one way dialogue like you need to engage with it and, and play it as well. And with this notion of uh, Dubai being uh, hard to analyze or, you know, describe, what was it like for someone like John Harris to suddenly in a position where he now has an opportunity to <laughs> kind of yeah design this place and, and 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 create a new city to an extent i'm glad you brought up the defies analysis that's such a wonderful moment uh in the book uh, just to let your listeners know uh it's a it's a british political agent who who says defy you know dubai defies analysis so, so don't even try to plan don't even you know, he's and he's not just talking urban planning, financial planning. Just it's just it's so complicated, it's so fluid and dynamic that there's just no way you can plan for this city. Meanwhile, a plan is needed. You know, you need a road system, you need a utility system, you need a traffic system, you need a, a bureaucracy uh, for people coming in to to immigrate here and to you know make sure that there are all sorts of kinds of approval processes for building. And I think there's you, you're kind of touching upon a, a, a real tension in this city. You know, on one side, it seems very legible. You know, people come here and think, I get this city. I know exactly what's going on. I can write 3,000-word article, you know, for the, I don't know, independent, and everything, you know, I'll, I'll be fine on my facts. The other side is this defies analysis. One can understand, one shouldn't try, which you know comes with a little bit of a sense of maybe there's another side to it that we don't know, a, a shaded side of it, right, a dark side. And that's a real tension that one needs to deal with in, in handling the city. I, you know, my first time here was in 2005. So I, and I still feel after, what's that, 16 years, I still have, a lot to know about this place and any place I believe you know it's not that that Dubai is different uh, in that sense any city 
If you think you want to write about a city from a particular point of view, you need to be invested in it in some ways. Harris Cumming, he's an interesting figure. Uh, he's not, he has a certification in British Newtown planning. He's not an urban planning planner. Uh, at the time, late 50s, you know, the uh, Newtown planning is, 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 is a thing. Newtowns are opening in, in the UK. And he's not really directly related to the scene. And there is another firm that is informally competing with Harris for the project, for the, new for the town plan of Dubai. And it's not even clear whether both Harris and the other firm know. The other firm is a, a firm that was well known for, for town planning both in the UK and outside, including in Baghdad. They'd done a plan for Baghdad. Choosing Harris also meant choosing less expertise in a way. Uh, I mean, he was a young architect. He had a very small firm. He was going to put all his youthful energy into it. And so he's giving the city a, a plan, you know, that doesn't come with lots of analysis. It doesn't come with traffic counts. It's not based on any sort of demographic counts because those weren't there yet. And he's able to work with that um, as a, let's say, as, as a drawback. But then, you know, all these kinds of issues and questions of traffic counts and, and population goes back to the defies analysis, oftentimes something that one wants to avoid even knowing, right? And, and one of the things that stood out for me in terms of Harris as an architect who is now designing, because you cover the hospitals, the Russian hospital, Maktoum hospital, and, and the book culminate, and National Bank of Dubai was a, a key one. That was a really fascinating chapter. I mean, they're all fascinating in terms of it really it, it's historical but it's also you know observational and there's a lot of references so um and it culminates in the the world trade center which was you know the the i guess i think there was a line i think that said there was you know what was john harris you know that was kind of the the build-up to john harris's uh contribution as an architect to the city and and so one thing that stood out for me is how he was very particular about creating spaces that works with the climate of Dubai, right? So he was never about trying to come up with something aesthetically, you know, I know, rah-rah and spectacular and, and almost, and he also referred to it like, you know, he kind of avoided the whole Orientalist uh, approach to coming up with designs. And if anything, I feel, you know, the orientalization almost became a, a, you know, it came from within many decades later, right? So this kind of idea of here now, you know, what is what is Islamic architecture and and symbols, you know, oriental symbols in a way to, uh, you know, the eagle and and the falcon and, and the palm trees. And, and these, I feel, are not necessarily from, um, you know, from a... a architects from the West, it's anything, it's, you know, self-orientalization that's kind of enforced these symbols to represent what Arabness is or what Islamic is in, in this part of the world. So I love that he kind of, like, it just felt there were modest designs. I felt like he was a modest person as well, so it was never about big kind of showmanship and um, perhaps other businessmen or other people with more money who want to now get a piece of the pie of what's happening in Dubai are almost trying to outdo what he does, right? And, and, and I like there's a line where, you know, 
they were coming up with design that defies the, the, the climate of the city, coming up with things that defies the natural uh, uh, environment, whereas Harris was definitely trying to work with the environment. And yeah, I don't, I, you know, I don't know how long he lived to see how things changed and what his response was, you know, how, how things were being designed here. On your last point, I don't have a lot on that. Uh, and one of the reasons why I don't is Harris, even though uh, he, he could kind of, in a funny way, make fun of, of diplomats, there was something very diplomatic about him. And that, I think, is where his modesty is. I mean, I, I, I would agree that he was, he was modest in his approach, but he wasn't meek. Modesty was also strategy. Modesty was also a way of, of, of stepping aside and letting these buildings, you know, today, we talk about Zaha Hadid buildings. We talk about buildings by Norman Foster. These weren't John Harris buildings. These were projects from the Amaktoum family, Rashid Hospital. These were very much connected to the establishment of, of Dubai, Dubai as a uh, increasingly independent and then part of, of a federation, the UAE. And Harris knew that. One great anecdote, which I could not get in the bo book, was an architect who once worked for him uh, temporarily well, got on an airplane. He was in Dubai, he had a role of drawings, you know, and, and this is totally normal. One has a role of drawings, it says the name of the firm and the project. I think he may have been working on Rashid Hospital, like an expansion of it, and it probably said on there, John R. Harris and Partners, Rashid Hospital. So he put it on the plane, put it you know, in the overhead compartments, and the next day, he went to work and had this role, and he sees John Harris. And John Harris asks him, did you bring this with you from Dubai? And he said, yes. And he said, did you bring it with you on the airplane? He said, yes. And he said, you know, and this is a man who no one can ever tell you ever raised his voice. He raised his voice and said, this was a terrible thing you did. You just showed it everyone on that plane, that John R. Harris and Partners is working on Rashid Hospital. He's, he's trying to avoid any sort of, of, of press in that regard. But he does do press. He does get the, some of his projects in British magazines. And he is, you're right, I'm glad you picked up on that. His approach to climate was his way of approaching the local, not in the way that we see sustainability today. I mean, sustainability today is now a science. But it is similar to the way sustainability works today because sustainability components of projects is often treated as apolitical. If you want to be local, you got to be sustainable and as if climate is something apolitical. And so in that regard, Harris was already onto that uh, as early as the 1960s with Maktoum, Al Maktoum Hospital. He was definitely, uh, not just in terms of climate, also technology. I, before we started talking, you mentioned the, the uh, elevators. He mentions at one point, you know, when the closest person who can repair your elevator is in Beirut, you don't need to have an elevator. So he's very aware of kind of, of, of not just climate, but also the, the, the technology that's available uh, to, to maintain these buildings. And he was also anti kind of, you know, glass, right? Because of like, then it means you have to clean the glass buildings and that means water and water is, you know, not in abundance here. And I think it's even a bigger topic today. And, and I keep wondering, oh my God, if more of those ideas were 
followed, uh, you know, things would be different. And if anything about the elevators, you know, I, I keep imagining if we, if low rise was kind of the signature look of this place, you know, we might have been a much healthier and fitter society, right? <laughs> Using the stairs versus kind of these high rise uh, elevators. Yeah, I'm very struck up, you know, because it comes up, I think, more than once about, yeah, you know, the, the, you know, we need to think about water shortage because, you know, so designing buildings that are with glass surfaces is not the best idea. And I think to myself, my God, I just wish this was a mantra that more architects followed, more, you know, and, and something Dubai and the UAE in general should kind of, you know, think about more take and take it more seriously versus sustainability now, which, yes, is kind of a, a popular term and almost kind of, you know, for marketing reasons, right? Which maybe leads me to, yeah, this marketing idea, right? And this, I, you know, so Dubai to an extent defies analysis, but Dubai also is very much uh, playing the marketing and positioning and promoting itself that way. And this goes way, you know, back to the 60s and you've seen ads and, you know, pamphlets and in British publications. So yeah, do, do you want to tell us about that? One of my favorite uh, moments of, of, of working on this book was finding this film that was that was made in 1958, which is produced by the British government, uh, no, technically produced by a British private company, but it's been um, it's been commissioned by the British government. And what you see in that film you see all these kinds of symbols that we talk about today. You see the purling, you see the hawk, you see the dows, you see, the, you hear the music, the camels, the fishing. All of these things are being kind of already by British observers being utilized to, to tell a story about Dubai and the other trucial states. I mean, going back to your point about self-orientalization, this is actually a moment where we see someone else is defining what is the local character and then that becomes internalized eventually marketing that you just see throughout the book i mean that's the reason why i named the book showpiece city showpiece that comes if i can tell you that if that's okay that the term showpiece comes up so often specifically in british press i don't know of other english language press but you see them, they're searching for this word that we use today, icon. And showpiece is just so much better. It, it, it's, it's so much more, let's say, it's, it's filled with its own meaning. It's literally a piece to be shown. It's something to be viewed from abroad, whether that's in press or from you know, far off on the horizon. And it's a promise. It's not just that that thing is there and therefore this city can provide this kind of level of comfort or this, this image, but it can also promise that there will be more like it to come. And that's already happening um, even in uh, the late 60s, early 70s. The, there's a story, I believe, in the Russian Hospital chapter about how the people, the advisors to Sheikh Rashid, and they're not all Emirati, right? There, there are uh, Bahrainis in there, there are British people in there, there are Arabs from other Arab countries there who are advising and, and working with them. Sudanese, Kamal Hamza is there, and they're helping Rashid now write the marketing story. And this already starts happening 
uh, in the late 60s, kind of flipping the story where the British government is no longer introducing Dubai as a place of, of potential profit to engineers and planners, but it's now being sold from the municipality. But again, we can't, we can't distinguish local and global or local and foreign definition of this because the people advising Rashid are already a, a constellation of, of different kinds of people. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, right? So there's just the different, you know, the nationalities, the skill set, the professions. And, mm. and in a way, just, I mean, the chapter about the creek was just, and maybe because I'm very familiar with the area, like it was, it was so visual in my mind. Like I could imagine, you know, a film being made out of it, right? It really evokes kind of the hustle and, and you know, kind of getting things done and, and, um, and 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 with all these protagonists in the place, right? So everyone's there, and it it feels like it's a place where they're there for a job. We're here; it's opportunities, you know, to make money, to profit, and this includes the the locals, right? So as soon as you know the rich merchants and the traders also see the potential, you know, they they want a bit of that, right? So it's not just Sheikh Rashid now developing and investing whatever money he has, and you know, also raising money, right? So there was this whole idea of who's funding what. And it, it, and I forgot the exact line, but there is this um, uh, this definition of kind of the importing of knowledge, right? So it's importing knowledge because none of it necessarily existed here. Like, so you're bringing, uh, so outsourcing. So there's also kind of outsourcing government to private sectors, right? There's a, a line, and I forgot what page it is. And I paused when I got to that because I was thinking about, yes, as much as you know, knowledge and expertise was being imported, but there was no knowledge transfer, right? So, so, and and maybe this is something that's being corrected, you know, maybe perhaps over the past decade and a half. But yeah, this this knowledge transfer, which is why there's, I feel, these lines, right? This kind of, you know, who who is seen as knowledgeable? Who uh, who is allowed to make? X amount of salary, you know, so now we get into kind of nationality and class. And even though, and, and though there is a reference to how, you know, the city was segregated, but there's nothing in writing that talks about race, but it refers to class, right? So already there's this kind of two sides of the same coin <laughs> notion of how people are being perceived and who's allowed, like I said, right, to have a say, who's um, positioned to show that they're the ones knowledgeable, who, what kind of jobs they get, you know, working class versus upper class, and, and working class means, yes, it's, oh, the South Asian part of the world. And, and obviously, the repercussions of this is, you know, ongoing, <laughs> we see it today, and, and, and in a way, fine, not necessarily unique to Dubai, but it's just something I feel that is very much, we're stuck with this, and I don't know how much of that will be corrected, will be changed. I'm first very happy that you enjoyed the Dubai Creek chapter. Uh, it's a, one of my favorite, and I have to give a shout out to my editor, Kate Wall, who really pushed me, especially in that chapter, to work on my writing. And I, especially in that chapter, I, I've become a better writer in that sense of looking, you know, looking into images, looking into how other people have described, to, to try to bring it to life. And that was really important to me. And then the absence of knowledge. I think one thing, to go back to the Dubai Creek chapter, I think one important lesson that comes from that chapter is 
there's a difference between being modern and modernizing. And indeed, there was very much a sense of being modern already on the creek then. There are countless people who are wily enough to get around all the sorts of, of, of British rules that forbid them trading with different places in the world, making contacts that they're not allowed to have. And I think that's, that's, that's an extreme form of intelligence and a, and a means of survival. At the same time, the British know that they need to allow that so that then they don't have a, a, a problem at, uh, in front of them. When we speak of the knowledge not being there to, to let's say, as simple as build a six-story building with an elevator, and of course people could build homes, you know, that, that knowledge transfer, that knowledge being here is, is a designed absence. So the trucial states, going back to that, you know, that came with all sorts of, of parts of that agreement which really limited the ability of people here to be connected to the outside world, whether that's Cairo or, I don't know, Italy. And, and that has consequences. And it's then in the mid-1950s when Dubai, or sorry, when the British government wants to begin to um, try to, one, entice the power, people who have power in the city with engineering projects, when they want those engineering projects so that they can maintain their own kind of, of operations here, trade, also uh, oil exploration, there's a realization, oh, well, there's no one local here to do it, all the better for the British economy. So again, that absence is a profitable situation for the British economy. Who are they? British engineers who arrive in 1954 and can write down on paper somehow out of the same mouth that there is no history of, of tidal movements and, and annual under and kind of, what would you say, like an annual logs of, of movements of, of, the, of the creek. There is no history of that, but they know exactly that it, things are going bad and it needs engineering. So how, do you, how can both be correct? There were people who worked and knew this you know, Dubai Creek uh, you know, as like the back of their hand, you know, to, to use the cliche. And those people were being ignored and suddenly what was being put forward as the, you know, the highest level of knowledge are these British engineers who, by the way, in 1961 make an atrocious mistake and everyone suffers uh, on the coast of Dubai Creek when a storm is intensified. It's the, 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 the effects of the storm are intensified by those engineering uh, changes to the creek. And it's interesting how the creek was, and, and I think to Chef Rush, like he wants to, you know, that was important. So it, was, it wasn't about Dubai, it was the creek. So whoever's in charge of the creek, I think, held power, right? So that was the center. So it wasn't about, oh, is Dara the center of Dubai or where Dubai? Like the creek is the center of Dubai and who, who controls that is in charge, basically, right? And, and, then, and then the idea of these engineers and I, I, ideas of what to do around the creek and, and maybe, yeah, maybe it wasn't necessarily thought of at the time, but, you know, quality of life, right? So, like, living by the creek and to be able to use the creek to swim and, you know, for leisurely activities, which may not necessarily be money-making activities, but, you know, the way kind of the whole area was being designed to accommodate for capitalism. And, 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 and it's regretful that, yeah, there's no part of the creek which, is, which can be used by humans, right? So, like, 
Um, I mean, I remember when my father would say, like, as kids, yeah, they would swim in the creek, and eventually post-60s, you know, it became less and less swimmable because of, you know, pollution. And 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 I wondered today, and despite the idea of kind of always promoting, you know, living by the ocean, you know, the marinas and the palm islands of, of Dubai, and, you know, this attraction of living by the water, but you can't use the water. And, and I know, like, when I travel, you know, houses by the lake and people can swim. And it's like, I, I live close to the creek, but I can't go swimming in the creek, right? And and I just feel it's such an unfortunate way of looking at the creek where at the time I think it was, yeah, what, what can we build? What can we make more? And, you know, it's about making money. Uh, but also the characteristic of the creek has changed over the past five, eight years, right? So the, the idea that, yes, these DAOs that would come and the cargo, it was, and as much as that was work and that was like a profession, but it was part of kind of the, the, the aesthetics of the city, which was joyous. And we've done many walks and I've done many walks alone. And, and I miss that because now the creek is just lined with, you know, kind of the the floating restaurants, right? The, the, you know, that look like DAOs and, and the actual DAOs with the cargo and the people working on it, you know, they're now assigned to a very different part of Dubai where they're not even engaged with the city. They can't just get off the boat and go and grab a bite somewhere, right? So I feel the economy also changed, which is accommodating tourism, which obviously I, I think is another key thing for Dubai, right? This reliance on, you know, tourism is important. Uh, but yeah, it's just... I don't know. I don't necessarily have a question, but yeah, I don't know how you want to respond to it. But I just miss that part of the Greek, and it's not being nostalgic or rose tinted eyes. I just felt it was a really key characteristic of the city that I feel we've lost. And and I know even visitors from abroad would enjoy that part. So even from as a touristic element, you know, it's a shame they didn't kind of capitalize on keeping that because that's what would draw. That's what made Dubai look and feel different compared to other Gulf places. For sure. And that's something that the book gets into is that through the engineering projects around the creek, it's literally a hardening of the edges uh, of the creek. It's also a shrinking of the creek so it becomes thinner so that water moves more quickly. I mean, it's been dramatically changed. And we're not talking about the changes that have happened in the last 15 years. These are quick changes well in, by 1970. Uh, there was someone who worked for Halkro, which was responsible for all these plans and it happened in phases and at one point you know he does at least he tells his wife who outlived him uh, who I interviewed um, they, he was very much of the opinion that the creek should keep to what you call a soft edge uh, this part of the creek where we are today so we're sitting at, in the Jamil Art Library and this is actually something that's a rather new experience for us to sit here right I mean we when did this open? 2019. So for us to be sitting here is like we we couldn't have sit here, sat here three years ago. And I think that's also something that's changed. Uh, so what happens is, indeed, the the rest of the creek is is regulated through engineering. Uh, of course, then it becomes very different when the canal starts moving to Business Bay. Let's not get into that. But there is also, but. The 1971 plan by John Harris, he envisions the city being still centered around the creek. So let's say it's still being hardened. It's still remaining, as you said, the creek is the center, the center of power, the center. It's a cultural signifier. It's also a geographical signifier. You know where you are in relation to where you are with the creek. 
Meanwhile, and I think most planners, even working for the city of Dubai, agree with Harris that the, the city should continue to grow around the creek. The market is saying something entirely different. The market is saying all the wealthier people, the higher paid people, the Europeans, the Americans, they want to live in what we see now as, as villas in Jumeirah. And in fact, Harris is trying to suggest, no, you need to put high-end housing on the creek. Even there's an, a proposal for an artificial island in the creek. He wants to put in a civic center uh, near, I, I guess it would be probably where the municipality is today, um, but that would be a cultural center with a library. Um, perhaps a theater, I think, was in, involved in that. And that just doesn't happen. Why? Because the market is moving people away. So the creek is, is left. I mean, that's why the exhibition uh, outside here is called Off Center on Stage. Is there's this departure from the creek. So at once it's being, it's almost as if, well, why couldn't you have just left it alone uh, if it was going to be departed from anyways? But everything that happened on the creek, everything that was learned on the creek in terms of what engineering can provide, what what urban development can provide in terms of, of profit, but also in terms of convincing others that this is a city to be lived in, was learned here in Dubai Creek, and then practiced, improved upon, uh, stacked upon uh, further out toward Abu Dhabi. Yeah, and this idea of what is the city center, right? So even, I mean, like, you know, the the so-called downtown Dubai, you know, quote-unquote, the name of the place, like kind of redefining what downtown Dubai is, you know, when that name came up, I'm like, no, that's not downtown, like the real downtown is by the creek, so to me, and anyone who knows me knows how I am very much attached to, you know, the Dubai that's close to the creek, you know, especially the Dara side of Dubai, and yeah, so when these changes started happening, and as you said, right, so it's the market that's defying and, 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 and dictating these changes, which is very frustrating, and how do you fight that, right? And and um, and yeah, so the idea of this being the city center, but then is that normal for cities, for their centers to change, you know? Is, is this something that's, you know, out of Dubai, or do you see that elsewhere, you know, that the, the so-called core center of the city now changes? It's not, you know, it's, it's not a fix, it's not a fixture. <laughs> Yeah, certainly. I mean, centers have been left and cities expand. I think that's a very common thing that happens, for sure. I just don't know of a city. I mean, of course, there there are rivers that that go through cities. I mean, London, right, is is one. I don't know enough about the urban history of London, but what's so wonderful about Dubai Creek is, you know, it it really was the heart of of two cities, Dubai and Dara. Uh, on either side, and you know, lots of reasons why they didn't get along. And it was actually the creek, the engineering of the creek, the profitability of that engineering project, that started to settle a lot of the the ruptures happening. You know, and then a bridge, of course. But yeah, I mean, for sure, centers are departed from. And but you know, we have a project uh, just outside. I, I don't think we can see it from the windows here, but Dubai Creek Harbor. I believe it was was pitched as returning to the heart of the city. You know, I've written about this before, like, you know, the, by that point, we've had so many hearts in Dubai. I mean, Dubai is a city that pumps with multiple hearts. And that's part of, I think that has, I think that's intentional. You know, when I was first coming to Dubai, to 2005, until the, you know, financial uh, problems in 2000, let's say starting in 2008, 
it was a really, the traffic was crazy. Of course, then there was the, 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 the financial crisis. But after that, traffic never got that insane again. And people did return and more people came. But all these new developments, developments have opened, right? All these kind of new, maybe they are like the hip today, 15 minute cities, you know, where you can get everything you need. You know, every development has its own mall, has its own fitness center, its own schools even. And so people move less. They don't go to the old hearts that, you know, we used to go to in 2006, seven. But I mean, speaking of city, uh, city centers and you brought up off center on stage, you know, which is an exhibition and a book, which I mean, I see it as a sequel to Showpiece City. Do you see it that way as well? It's kind of, I, I think there's some serious personal growth in between them. I was uh, giving a tour to the Art Jamil uh, crew here uh, yesterday and a similar question came up. And, you know, looking back, this exhibition that we've put up, supposed to come out last year, uh, I personally like to see it aligned with Expo 2020, but because of COVID and because I couldn't be here, we agreed to open it this year, and it fortunately aligns with... And can we maybe just quickly describe what the book is and the exhibition is, just so listeners know? Sure. It is uh, focused on uh, photographs from the 1970s, uh, taken by two architects, both affiliated with the Harris firm, uh, including John Harris's son, Mark, also uh, Stephen Finch, but, yeah, so the idea, these were images that I'd, I had come across working on the book, and they were in color, and most, most of the book was, all of the book is in black and white, and I wasn't going to be able to, to enjoy their, their color dome, I guess. <laughs> and so I was interested in, in exhibiting them, and Antonia Carver and Skatan here were very enthusiastic about it. They offered a home to the idea. And... If we were going to do it last year, I think it was just going to be a very, uh, this is actually the same story, Showpiece City. It was going to be a quick piece of work, some nice captions with images. But then I had a year. And what I learned is, you know, after such a long writing project, I think, I think a lot of people feel this way. After you literally press the send button and it's out of your hands, a zip file to your publisher, there's this moment where all everything that you've done has just kind of come together. You know, you finally found your voice. You've gone through and through the, the drafts to get that voice clear and consistent. And then it's all there, and the, but then it's gone. And it was a kind of a moment that I, I found very luxurious that I could sit down again and write again about, not, not correct anything, but keep going, you know? And, I, and keep going also in a sense of style. I, I don't know if you noticed, but I feel like the style is very... Um, it's much more liberated, it's, it's much more experimental, and whereas the book I felt, even though it's, it's not an academic book, I mean, it's, it's rigorous, but I really wanted to tell a story, but I felt like I could, you know, stretch my neck out, touch my toes, and, and get going in, a, in a, a more experimental way. Yeah, definitely the tones of the two books are very different. Um... But it's not a sequel like this ends in 79 and then we <laughs> yeah, pick yeah, up yeah. in 80. So maybe a companion piece, <laughs> maybe a companion piece. Yeah, nice set. Uh, or, you know, or like, you know, with movies, when a longer version is like the director's cut. Yeah. So maybe it's like the writer's cut. But yeah, no, it's, it's uh, I mean, these photos, again, none of them were taken to be put in an 
you know, contemporary art <laughs> space, right? So to, you know, vernacular photography, but also that art, that's important, that tells a story that is, uh, you know, there's visual representation and, and sometimes to me, these are probably like even more important because there's just something very honest and natural about them. And they're not necessarily super staged. You know, the, the photographer, the people who took these photos aren't professional photographers. Right. So I think it's kind of documenting their surroundings. But I think it's important to know that both are, are architects. Yes. And I think that's something important to understand that when an architect picks up a camera, it's a it's a it's a strange. I can't think of anything to compare it to. I don't think a, an architect can pick up a camera, visit a city that they're getting to know without looking at architecture, without looking at urban space, without looking at how people use those spaces, with how light and temperature works with with building materials. And so, I mean, if I'm if I was writing a book of, of a history of Dubai through the lens of architecture, I was literally looking through a lens of architecture at, at their photographs in that way. And I, I'm still not exactly clear what makes an architect a different kind of photographer, but I, I, I wonder, I, I'm curious to hear if other people um, sense that as well. I mean, it makes sense what you're saying because obviously the way some of these photos are composed and, I mean, even the one, now that you say, like, they were thinking about how are people engaging with surroundings. So now I'm rethinking like the, the images with people, like in the shops and mm. uh, you know the in the markets. And yeah, like they're thinking about about that. But there's also a line in your uh, your essay in the book which talks about you know city as archives, right? And I really like that phrase. And again, I think anyone who knows me, well, you know, archive is important. But then also, you know, there's a lack of archive or what's you know that. It's also a thing that I, I'm trying to process and understand uh, in, in Dubai. But yeah, I kind of, can you tell us more about that? You know, there are a lot of people who, who, who use this kind of comparison of cities to archives. And for me, you know, I think it, it can be helpful to think of it that way. I think it can also be deceptive. Uh, cities as archives, okay. But cities are built by the winners. So there's a lot of things that didn't happen. And to understand what is built, you have to also have to understand how it got built, what, what was there before it, what has um, been rejected. And that's, but also, you know, archives aren't absolute either. I always think of um, a history professor who I, whom I know, she, gets, she does a lesson with her students, master students. She gives them a, a page from a, a government archive and she asks them to you know report on it write a report it maybe kind of make some assumptions of what comes next and the next day in class she says here's page two which totally counteracts what page one says you know so that that's a kind of lesson in the fact that what we have in the archive is what made it through and it's also gone through some sort of organization some sort of selection at some point they're never absolute, and cities aren't either. So the book is, in essence, I mean, simply described, it could be a photo book, so there's a caption, so you've got... I call them vignettes. Vignettes. And how many photos in total? I'd say they're like, uh, total, more than 100 are in there, but the vignettes are, I'd say, are at about 65 or so. Yeah, and they're all, you know, 
easy to read pieces attached to each uh, you know accompanying each photo and uh, like I said a nice kind of time capsule of the 1970s through the lens of architect and then the exhibition though is, is presented slightly different so do you want to talk about that of course I do <laughs> the what I really wanted to capture in these from these photographs is that they were taken as slides and I was looking into slides, and I, I loved that someone was describing them as a kind of pre-digital way of storing information. There's this incredibly compact way of, of packing in a lot, a lot more than, say, a negative film. And I found that really fascinating. And I also wanted to have that experience of, of blowing something up and understanding that it is from a slide. And then, of course, there's just the aesthetic pleasure of, of slide film, and specifically Kodachrome. There's just these colors that are so deep. And if you make a print of it, it's just, it, you lose it. Even, you know, we had to work with them for the, the book, and they had to be edited to be publishable. But in the exhibition, we wanted these Kodachrome colors just to, to live. There's a kind of blue haze going through, but also kind of rich reds and greens and yellows that pop out. So we did them as light boxes, which are, are mimicking, say, the, the light table or the projection. And we've, you know, the, the lobby is, is my absolute favorite space in, in this building at, our, at Jamil Arts Center, because you, you arrive and you look out to the creek. And for me, it, that, that, that experience from walking from the doors toward the creek is like literally walking back in time, because space and time are connected, right? By do, the further you're away from the creek, creek the further away you are further forward you are in time and so you're literally going backward and so they're they're organized in a kind of map of Dubai so you enter and you see the World Trade Center both architects were documenting with their cameras the construction of the World Trade Center at the time and there's a kind of stacking going on so there's a reference to uh, the port uh, stacking of, of, of boxes and crates suggestion of timelines suggestion of scaffolding as well what do you think? What do you see when you... Yeah, I mean, color definitely pops out first. Yeah. And I mean, you had me when you said, you know, you've got these slides and you're going to exhibit them and light box. I'm like, yes, bring it on, you know. And already I envisioned something that's going to be very rich looking in terms of, uh, uh, you know, aesthetics. And then obviously, yeah, any, any, uh, any historical reference to Dubai, so be it, you know, photos by architects I feel is important because it adds to the narrative because yeah there's no it's it's never complete I guess right like because you're always digging and finding so yeah no I'm looking forward to seeing how people respond to it and I'm I'm glad that it's on for a long time so it's on like till March 2022 unbelievable so huh? that's really great yeah. and that's it's in the lobby so it's really the first thing people will engage with when they walk in and I love that it's parallel to the creek so yeah like there's lots of really great you know, p uh, points that are very pleasing to me personally. And yeah, an opportunity to engage with these photos and look at them and think about them. And yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm really glad this has happened. And I guess, you know, there's a saying in Arabic, like with every delay, there's something, you know, like uh, like there's something good about every delay. So, you know, I think you had this one extra year to think about. These I think that's things. a mantra of my life. <laughs> I, really I need a T-shirt. But I mean, can we talk about kind of the writing process and the research process? Because obviously there was a lot of fact-checking. Fact uh, uh, I mean, the, the, 
the Shopee City already has like lots of pages with reference, you know, where you've referred to your sources. And so, yeah, I'm curious to know what was it like to write a book? Because it's, you know, it's a it's nonfiction. You know, you're telling a story, you know, that this history. And like you said, the tone in Shopee City is very different to the book um, Off Center on Stage, where that one is, like you said, there's an experimental form to it. It's more... It's more like the Todd I know, like the Todd I'm having conversations with. Whereas the book, the Shopee City, there are elements because I love a lot of the way um, a lot of sentences ending each chapter was definitely like, oh my god, that's like a Todd, that's a Todd <laughs> line, you know, like we would have, you know, said something. So it's interesting how, yeah, it it has these multi layers where yes, it sounds academic, sounds historical, but it also has your personal voice in it. So yeah, like what was it like? Because you've, I mean, you've been writing for most of your life and. But writing a book like this, you know, because you also you also edit a lot, right? So there's an editing hat, but then you're also working with an editor. <laughs> so yeah, could you? And I'm very curious to understand what that process was like for you. I really don't know. I, it's I, I don't know what came over me. It's almost as if I've I had a fever and it's now gone and I'm back. Uh, and I, I need to think about it more and it's even, it's already been a year since it's been out almost a year it is something that comes over you where it's a kind of what is the term fight or flight and you have to choose one flight is to give up fight is to persist in the terms of writing a book and there were so many times I mean, you remember I used to have a lot more hair right I had curls right uh, it's all gone I really blamed the book you're laughing, I'm not. <laughs> okay, I'm a little... <laughs> so it is something that really became... I mean, I, th I think most people who um, de delve into books like this, they become very personal, personal psychological uh, projects in, in that regard. And they're very soul-searching, you know, especially if, when the book is about a city that I, I didn't grow up here. I came across it as a curiosity in my profession. But again, to, to get it out, you know, no one pays you to write books these days. When my, when my royalties come in this year, I probably can go out for dinner for one, maybe, you know? So there has to be something else that's driving you uh, to get it out. I think for me, there were a lot of years of real despair in it, and I don't want to sound so negative because I was I had happy times in my life for sure, but I was scared at, at times. And you need, I, I think there came a point maybe once I found the publisher, once Kate Wall has, had put some trust in me uh, to, to take the project, because that was also something. I'm not a tenured faculty member. I'm not... I don't have a PhD in urbanism or Middle Eastern studies, and so I feel like she really invested in me in that way, took a risk on me. And because I didn't study, uh, I didn't get a PhD in any of these topics, I, ha I got to find my own voice. But at the time, I thought it was I had to find my own voice, but I actually, I got to, and I, and I am so thankful that it's my voice. It's not something that I learned in, you know, miserable PhD roundtables. Sorry to all my friends who have PhDs. And that, that, that took time. I would say around year, year minus three from, uh, from finishing, 
I, I felt like the voice was found, and I also felt like I had dis defined my authority. Like I knew that I had two legs to stand on to tell a story. And people kept telling me that that moment has to come, but until you find it, you know, you're scared out of your mind that you're not going to. Well, I'm, I'm glad you persisted. I mean, again, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you had ups and downs like any project, yeah, you know, whether sure. it's a short term or long term, but, um, and it's not like you were working on this solely, right? You had other things yeah. to do because as you said, you know, you're not being paid for this. So, and I think it's important for listeners to understand that I think just a lot of things are taken for granted, right? So just, you know, and everyone is so used to reading things for free, right? Because of, you know, the internet <laughs> for all its good and, and bad. But these two books are an important addition to the history of Dubai, a way of rethinking this place or, you know, thinking of it in a way that people have not thought about before. And, you know, in history being important i was I, I i'm recalling a line in the book about the uh, the chapter about designing the the diwan the new diwan on the bird dubai side and where it was important to incorporate the wind tower so suddenly it was very much about coming up with design that represents identity which you know i mean the whole part of dubai also is very multi-layered in history and and uh, and so forth i mean even the recent renaming and right so from bastake to El bahidi district is is another topic that we can get into but there's an interesting line that you say that the duan design was an attempt to um, to come up with a new history not because there was no history but because a real history was not preferred you know so i i was very i paused at that line because i thought about Again, here how, you know, when you look around, things that are demolished. So there is no physical representation of, uh, you know, old architecture. It's gone. And that's why this continuous idea of Dubai is new, right? Because anything old is not around. Nothing, anything old isn't allowed to be maintained and taken care of and, and protected. So, yeah. So when we talk about these two new books are an important addition to the history of the city of Dubai, I'm also thinking about this line about, you know, you know, not coming up with uh, history because there is no history, but it's, you know, because the real history was not preferred. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? So the Amiri Dewan is, is in the book, but I, I put it as, a, as an epilogue, so it's not a ch proper chapter. One reason being I didn't have a lot on it, but second being it's, it, it's a, it is an afterword in the sense that the World Trade Center, I mean, the way you were describing the approach to architecture, the approach to uh, an architectural language, I mean, the, the, the World Trade Center does have these arches that are, are signifying something toward some kind of Islamic arch, but, the, but the, the, the kind of angle of it is also designed for, um, for sun shading. It's with the Emiri Dewan that everything goes out the window. Uh, the the client is now no longer directly Sheikh Rashid. The client is the ruler's office, connected to the Dubai municipality. With uh, Sheikh Rashid definitely taking a step back, um, he it, during the process he either has a stroke, or this is just before um, he is seriously infirmed by a stroke. In that process, and I, I'm very thankful to Stephen Finch, who is one of the photographers of, of the exhibition who helped me on understand this better. It was through him that I see the, the competition guidelines and they specifically refer to showing Islamic architecture and high 
tech technology, something like this. You know, I mean, how do you like what? What do you want a new kind of Islamic design, or do you just want everything mishmashed together? It's the latter. And so you have these, you know, citations of the of the Barjil, which, of course, the Barjil comes from Iran. They've been they their their dimensions are completely warped in, in the to to fit within the building. Of course, they're not functioning Barjil. They're actually hiding elevator equipment and AC equipment on the roof. So Barjil is wind towers for any listeners not familiar with that word. Wind towers, yes. And Stephen Finch told me that. If this was a competition, so Harris this time doesn't get a direct commission, it's they win a competition. After the competition, the team is told they need even more Islamic design in this uh, in this project. So you know, here we have what we always see here, you know, the incorporation of the mushrbiya, which is not really something that one one sees here, and it becomes a kind of security mechanism uh, and an ornament as opposed to actually a functioning mushrbiya. So there's this already a kind of piling on of references and, and meanings, which maybe someone would call postmodern, that have nothing, again, to do with what, what is around us. And this is also a moment when the architecture that Harris has been a part of, it was enough to be expressive of the technology within it. It was enough to show that there was a plan, that there was a parking lot next to a site de- um, uh, dedicated to, to health care. These were these were not just simple buildings that you know focus only on their on their functions. That was the show. The show was that things were indeed functioning. When that is no longer enough of a show, what do you look for? And the Dubai municipality had a clear answer. So I know we'll leave it at that. Uh, I'll be I will include all the links and the notes of the episode on where to find the book and the exhibition dates etc and come see the exhibition yes come and see the exhibition in person don't just rely on images on instagram and so forth because that's the other thing <laughs> it doesn't work very well on instagram so far i don't think so all Good. the more reason come it, in person yes. exactly more reason to come and see it in person and yeah i mean again is there it's like 100 plus images that in the exhibition no 58 or, so 58, 58 so 100 plus in the book, 58 uh, light boxes in uh, Jamila Art Center. Please come browse, you know, and, and it'll be an enjoyable experience, I'm sure. Um, Todd, thank you so much. I'm glad we've had this kind of formalized discussion. I know we've talked countless times over the past decade, but I wanted an opportunity to have a formal discussion, to put on the podcast, to, you know, be part of... Uh, an official kind of discussion about, yeah. about the book. So good luck with everything, and yeah, we'll keep t- we'll keep talking for sure. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me on your podcast. And thank you for listening. If you're in Dubai, you can visit the exhibition off center on stage at Jamil Art Center. It's on until March twenty first, twenty twenty two. You can find the books in Jamil Art Center's physical shop and online store, alongside exhibition posters and postcards. Showpiece City is also available in Kinukunuya in Dubai, but if you live in any other part of the world, you can easily find the book online and order it. Uh, The episode notes includes a few direct links. For more discussions about art and culture, please follow or subscribe to Tea with Culture on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, or any other podcast app you may be using. 
please do leave a rating or a comment. We'd love to hear from you. You can also follow Tea with Culture on Twitter and Instagram.